0: from Exodus chapter 25 verses 1 to 8. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, Ram skins dyed red and another type of durable leather. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. We just...
1: We just heard in Exodus uh, 25 what the Lord asked the people to to give in order for them to make a sanctuary, and now in Exodus 26, we're getting all the very precise instructions. Make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Make loops of blue material along the edge of the end curtain in one set and do the same with the end curtain in the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end of the other set with the loops opposite each other. Then make fifty gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit.
0: Make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, eleven altogether. All eleven curtains are to be the same size, thirty cubits long and four cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together into one set and the other six into another set. Fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and also along the edge of the end curtain in the other set. Then make 50 bronze clasps and put them in the loops to fasten the tent together as a unit. As for the additional length of the tent curtains... The half curtain that is left over is to hang down at the rear of the tabernacle. The tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. Make for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red and over that a covering of the other durable leather. Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle.
1: Each frame is to be 10 cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, with two projections set parallel to each other. Make all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. Make 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle and make 40 silver bases to go under them, two bases for each frame, one under each projection. For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle, Make 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame. Make six frames for the far end, that is, the west end of the tabernacle, and make two frames for the corners at the far end. At these two corners, they must be double from the bottom all the way to the top and fitted into a single ring. Both shall be like that. So there will be eight frames and 16 silver bases two under each frame.
0: Also, make crossbars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, five for those on the other side, and five for the frames on the west at the far end of the tabernacle. The centre crossbar is to extend from end to end at the middle of the frames. Overlay the frames with gold and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Also, overlay the crossbars with gold. Set up the tabernacle
1: according to the plan shown to you on the mountain. Make a curtain of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with hooks on four posts of acacia wood, overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant law in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite it on the south side. For the entrance to the tent, make a curtain of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. Make gold hooks for this curtain and five posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and cast five bronze bases for them.
2: One of the great truths of the Christian life that I believe in is that you have to learn, it's a wise thing to learn to be present in the boredom of life. Um, so many of us are conditioned now to distract ourselves in the boredom, but it's when you stare into the boredom that you start to face reality, and you face the questions of life. And then God—this is what this is why it's wisdom from the biblical wisdom. God speaks to us in that moment, but if we distract ourselves, we don't get to hear God in the boredom. And let's face it, most of life is mundane. You have the drudgery of work repeating over and over again. You have family chores and you have just the normal stuff of life that just keeps coming around year after year after year. The foolish person says to themselves, well, life, if I just keep doing the same thing over and over again will be boring so I'm going to fill myself with stimulation and uh, that is the foolish life, the life where you miss out on God but the wise person says I'm going to stare into the boredom and face it and then experience God in that moment that's how you start to experience the presence of God in your life when you do that this morning, we are seeking to un- find understanding in a passage of the Bible, which I'm going to put my head up and say, at first glance, is pretty boring. You come to church on Sunday morning, you do not expect to have two women stand up and read an instruction manual on how to build a tent. And that's what you've just heard, right? Um, but as Christians, we believe the whole of the Bible... This is what mainstream Christians have believed since we've had the Bible for almost two thousand years. Well, we've had the Bible for two thousand years and compiled it with a little less than that. Um, we believe that every book is important, every word is important, is God breathed, is useful for us. That means it's it's useful for um, our understanding salvation and everything that we need to know about God. That means that even the passages of the Bible that are instruction manuals on how to build a tent for worshipping God, even those passages are also important. So what we've got to do to the foolish Christian or the the, the immature Christian will say, well, I'll I'll read through the exciting bits of Exodus, you know, the, the plagues and the Red Sea parting and the burning bush and all of that stuff. But then when I get to the slower bits... I'll just skip over those chapters because they're boring. But the wise Christian stares into the boredom and says, what is God saying to me here? And in fact, what we will see is that God raises some really important things, some really important themes for us that develop in these chapters. We see the Israelites, for example, moving from slavery to Pharaoh, building his buildings under oppression to the glorious duty of serving God and building a worship tent for God. This is a message that God is giving to Moses, what we, hear, what we heard, just read out. God gave him that on the mountain, about how the Israelites were to worship him. And so what we're going to do is first look at what we've just read out and just kind of make sure we've understood at a basic level what we've just had. And then see what relevance it has for us today, because it does have a lot of relevance for us today. So, first of all, let's just qu- quickly remind ourselves of the passages. There's two passages Exodus 25, 1 to 8. And what that, what that passage is, is it's the very beginning. So, so, at the end of chapter 24, Moses goes up into the mountain, and it says that he's enveloped by a thick cloud, sort of symbolizing the presence of God, and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And these first eight verses from chapter 25 are the first things that God says to Moses. And he gives him a list of materials that the Israelites are to gather um, um, in an act of worship and bring for the building of this this tabernacle. And it's good that we get these eight verses because it's kind of a brief summary of many chapters to come. And the materials are things that you would not expect from people wandering through the desert, for example, they're supposed to bring precious metals, expensive yarn and linen, acacia wood. Where do you get acacia wood from? Olive oil and spices, precious stones and gems. These Israelites are desert wanderers, but they happen to have all these items. Why? Because we find out earlier in Exodus that when they left Egypt that they plundered Egypt in fact the Egyptians were handing stuff over to them and so they could leave you know so they just they just went on their way carrying a whole lot of cool riches and God's now using all of that the stuff they took from Egypt to build this worship tent this tabernacle and God says to Moses initially at the very beginning here he says make sure you build it exactly how I say don't deviate Because what we're setting up here is really, really important. This is your opportunity to have me now present to you in a special and intense way in the life of your people. You are going to have access to me. So we can't just mess around with this. Do this right. Then we get to Exodus 26. So the rest of 25, there's more instructions we didn't read out because we... We, we would have been here all, all morning, and there's instructions about how to, how to build the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the Ten Commandments are to be stored, and um, the table, and um, the lampstand. But then in Chapter 26, we see the description of the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle essentially is a fancy, ornate tent for worship, made out of series of curtains and frames. Uh, The curtains cover the whole structure, and um, they're made of fine linen and coloured yarn. There's cherubim, which are angels, which are featured in the design, and they're there to remind people that this is a a special heavenly place, what we've got here. This is an earthly representation of the throne room of God. And sometimes in the Bible, uh, it it describes the throne room of God, where, where God sits on his throne as the heavenly tabernacle so same language is used and there's actually four layers that cover this tent there's the initial layer and then there's a layer of goat hair above that which we think is probably to protect uh the whole tent from the the weather because we're in the desert here so there's wind and there's rain and there's the harsh sun and then there's two more layers of uh ram skins and hides of sea cows Um, and these, then there's curtains that are joined together with bronze clasps and loops, and there's frames and crossbars that support the curtains made of acacia wood, Uh, and the crossbars are overlaid with gold and kept together with gold rings. Now, the thing is, you might think this is a lot of detail, but if you were to try to build this tabernacle, you would discover there's a lot of detail missing as well. It doesn't tell us, there's a lot, there's just gaps But anyway, this is what we're supposed to find find out. And this is what's recorded in the book of Exodus. Um, And God reminds Moses one more time in verse 30 to stick carefully to this plan. And then in verse 31, he gives Moses the instructions for how to make the curtain to separate the holy place inside the tent from the most holy place. And you'll see... On page six, a picture there, some some it's kind of approximated what we're talking about. See that little room on the left-hand side is the most holy place and there's the curtain to separate the holy place from the most holy place. And and the priest goes in and then there's a series of steps they follow, um, which is explained later in Exodus and and in other books of the Bible too. This whole entire structure, which you can see, the whole entire structure on the front page of the booklet, is about, we're talking about 150 feet long, and about seventy-five feet wide. So I don't know how long this building is, but we're sort of in the vague. Maybe, maybe a bit longer than. That's probably not. Engineers, what would you reckon that is? I'm looking at you, Mink. That's only thirty meters. What's that in feet? 90, so it's even longer than that this year. So it's quite a big area we're talking about here. And this is a portable structure we're talking about that's picked up, packed up, and carried through the desert as they wandered through. The holy place uh, was a rectangle measuring about 30 feet by 15 feet. And the most holy place is a square shape, about 15 by 15. And most biblical archaeologists and historians affirm that this makes sense that this would have existed as a real thing you might be wondering is this just um some idea that some person's written in the book of exodus that never actually occurred but it was quite common for people from that part of the world to um to worship in tent shrines in the in the ancient semitic culture um it was very common Okay, so we've talked about all this. And again, you'd be thinking, well, that's interesting. So, so, so the Israelites have this new tent structure that God's given them for how, to, how they're to worship and engage with him and, 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 and bring their sins before him. And there's a sacrificial system that's developed, which we're not going to look at today. But that's all part of what they do here. And, and, um, and, uh, but what has that got to do with you sitting in this room on the other side of the world several thousand years later? What has it got to do with you? Well, there's a few things I want to focus in on. Lessons from the tabernacle. And the first, at a very basic level, the first lesson we learn is this, and that is that God is present with us. God wants to be present with his people. And this tent for worship marks a change in the way God relates to his people. Prior to this, you know, God seems to appear in all kinds of, unusual ways at the top of mountains and unexpectedly but now he's always going to be close to Israel he would dwell in the center of their camp God has come down to be intimate with his people and God's presence isn't fixed in one location it's not like they build a shrine and that's where God is it's it's a movable structure this is a God who is on the move, who cannot be localized, who cannot be pinned down to one time and place. It would be much easier to have a sanctuary that is tied down and a God who is fixed, but Israel's God is a God who dwells in a traveling tent, as do the people. And also, God, think about it, God is present with Israel at their level. He doesn't sit up in a palace or in a high shrine looking down condescendingly. Um, This God takes up residence with his people. He tabernacles with them, to use the word that way. He's not at the edge of Israel's life, he's at the center. God is committed to the journey for the long haul. But when God became present in the tabernacle, this did not mean that the people could just take him for granted. It's not like, oh, God's one of us now, and so now we can just like, you know, take him for granted. No, there are special instructions for how they're to relate to him with with the tabernacle the priests started to take care in approaching the holy place they have to purify themselves god has chosen himself to dwell amongst them so again we've got to think of of, it's god's initiative this is not some magicians conjuring up god's spirit that's not what's going on here the divine glory fills the tabernacle in God's own way and God's own time. But also, the Moses and the Israelites, we're not to think, and they didn't think, that God is contained like in a box in the tent in the, in the back of the, that back room. They know that he is everywhere. As Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3 says... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of of His glory. They knew that God was everywhere, but in this tabernacle, He's got a special, intense presence. God's filling of the cosmos means that God is both near and far. In Jeremiah 23, 23, I love this question that God says. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? He's both close and he's, and he's everywhere as well. Now, if we're to fa- fast forward in the Bible, and this is really important in our understanding of this imagery of tabernacle and how it applies to us today, what we discover when Jesus is born, um, that the Gospel of John describes the arrival of the Son of God to earth he says that he came and he tabernacled amongst us. Uh, and so what, is, what they understood, the Jewish people understood of the tabernacle, they're saying now has been fulfilled in a, in a more glorious way in the person of Jesus. So he's amongst us. And so all those things I've just said about God's presence is true in Jesus. He's at their level. He's come to be with them, to be at the center, to travel with them. They can approach him. In fact, it's better. It's a lot better than the tabernacle. Jesus is a lot better because they can talk to him. They can go straight up to him. They don't need to go through a purification process. There's more intimacy, more immediacy. Jesus came not looking down on his disciples. He didn't come and build a palace and rule over them, but he ate with them. He cried with them. He laughed with them. He embraced them. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, God sends his Holy Spirit. And not that long ago, we, re- we remembered Pentecost, the day that God sent his Holy Spirit. And the most amazing thing happened to the disciples. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit came to dwell amongst them. And so they and we, if we are Christians, became and we are the new tabernacle. Both individuals, as individuals and as the community of the church. We are the place where God dwells now. Paul writes, the Apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? God now dwells in us. So right here in this room, we are in the Holy of Holies. Isn't that cool? Kind of. We're kind of like that. God is present with us here now. In a special intense way and if you're a Christian that's the great thing God is present with you in an intense way wherever you go he travels with you and so what we need to do as Christians is to think about this and go wow that that makes me special that makes me special you might have a low view of yourself many people do you might have a sense of shame or insecurity about your worth. But if you are with Jesus, then God is living inside of you. He's seen you as so special, He would want to do that. And so that has implications for us. That means, for a start, we have direct access to God at any time of the day. And also, it means we should look after ourselves, we should look after our bodies. Paul the Apostle says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, so honour your body. Do not use it for sin. The tabernacle is not the place to be sinning. God is with you in your daily living, in the good times and the bad. God is present with you in the interesting times and in the boring times. God is present with us. The second thing I want to pull out of this tabernacle passage is that God cares about our heart in our worship. The details and instructions relating to tabul- tabernacle show that God cares about their attitude, the Israelites' attitude, and he cares about our attitude. Uh, Exodus 25 verse 2 the fir- from the first reading says, "'Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from, for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give.'" So ultimately, all of our worship and response to God should come from a heart, our heart, our heart motivation. Now, this does not mean it should come from our emotions. That's not what heart means in the Bible. It's, you know, God is not saying to Moses, tell other people that if they're having a feeling like it's the vibe, if they're feeling the vibe, they should give me some you know, offering and then we can build the tabernacle." He's not saying that. And it's a huge mistake for us as uh, if we think this way now. It's a, it's a huge mistake to confuse our feelings with our heart, our heart motivation. Because the problem with worshiping God based on our feelings on its own is that our feelings are completely unreliable. So our feelings are dependent on how hungry we are. That's I know that's to be true for me. Imagine if you're feeling angry, you know, hungry and angry. Does that mean at that point in time, well, we should not um, worship God or serve God? Our feelings are based on how much sleep we have or haven't had or the movement of the hormones around our body or what medication we might be on. So our feelings can be all over the shop, can't they? We know that to be true. But our heart, when the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about our convictions, what's deep down in our gut. It's what motivates us to live. With God present in our lives, he works to change our hearts so that we can be more motivated to serve him. So the the discipline in discipleship is cultivating a heart that goes beyond basic feelings. Little kids are motivated by their feelings, aren't they? I am hungry. Give me food. You know, I am bored. I want the iPad. Um, And I think many of us, as we grow up, are like that. We don't stop being like that unfortunately. And and that's the same with our faith. We we just get bored and say so we want stimulation. Give me stimulation, Peter. Church, I want more variation and more interesting stuff and bells and whistles and, you know, come on. Like a little kid, you know. But God doesn't want us to be, remain as an impulsive baby. He wants us to grow in maturity. And actually, if you think about it, a lot of what we do as Christians is repetitive, isn't it? It's over and over again. And we do a lot of repetition as Christians because we believe it cultivates something mature in us. So we come to church on Sundays. Each Sunday we keep going, keep going. I've been doing it for 42 years. Since I was born the first day, apparently like three days, I was born a few days later. There, There I am singing Refiner's Fire, you know, I mean... It, it's seriously. It goes on for forty-two years, and and I hope, and I know that I will be doing it until until I die. We pray. We read the Bible. We we give our finances. We serve. We, we you know, and and a lot of what we do when we serve is boring. We do. It's just boring. It's like packing up chairs or rolling cables or cleaning up the dishes. But. This is what we have to do not because we have to not of a religious duty not to earn god's love because we believe that god is cultivating he's changing our hearts so that we can serve him more more and more and 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 love him and and we if you think about it this is what we are like in other areas of life uh, you know as a musician you practice and you practice and on repeat because you want to grow as a musician an athlete gets up at six o'clock in the morning when it's two degrees why over and over again to grow as an athlete and after a while the thing is after doing this repetition the heart follows if you want to be a mature christian make some hard and fast decisions and follow through I, i read a good thing this week part of being a mature christian yeah you sign up but then you show up as well. You don't just sign up, you show up. Starting next week, uh, we'll be promoting in the services for a whole month um, financial giving at church. And we have uh, about a $2,500 shortfall in our finances per month. And that's all part of the plan, so don't freak out. It's uh, extending our, um, what we're trying to do at church. And um, so we'll be talking about how you might be able to give financially to church, and this is part of the discipline of being a Christian. And it's, for some people, it's, it's exhilarating. Some people just love to give. For others, it's boring. You know, what do, you, what do I have to do, fill in a form or something? You know, boring. But it's part of serving God and, and living for God. It's that heart motivation of the disciple. And you might not feel like it. It might not give you, a, a, you know, joy initially but over time you'd be surprised what happens to you give from your deep convictions god is present in your life let him determine how you give so god is present with us and he cares about our heart in worship and the last thing i want to pull out of this tabernacle passage so you didn't realize there's all this in this passage did you is that god loves order and beauty now, there's a real importance given to shape, order, and beauty in this passage, in the tabernacle, if you think about it. The structure and the interior design, there's furniture, there's colour, there's even certain shapes that they've got to design. And what you notice if you read the Bible from the start and you start in Genesis, God creates the universe, Exodus, stuff happens and then God says, "Build the tabernacle." And there's a lot of similar themes. It sounds similar, the way God talks about building the universe, to the way He talks about building the tabernacle. And this is intentional. Both are constructions from God, and they reflect each other. They they kind of link. The tabernacle is like a, a kind of a, a connect. has a connection to the whole universe. Um, the the tabernacle is like a microcosm of the idealized universe, the idealized cosmos. The tabernacle is the world as it's meant to be. It's a testimony to the creator God of Israel. It's a palace for their king. And this is really significant because if you think about it, in in the midst of a fallen world, a world that is in exile from the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden was the very first heaven on earth, wasn't it? But they're in exile from that now. God undertakes a new act of creation, a building project that is actually a return to this pre-fall beauty. There's these spiritual images in the tabernacle that is saying God is returning to this in this place here. The tabernacle therefore makes us think about salvation, not just because there are sacrifices that occur there; people pay for their sin, uh, 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 perform the sacrifices for their sins. Not because just because of that. Not just because of the offerings, but we think of God's salvation of the world because inside the walls of this tent structure, a piece of holy ground is there, in the middle of a world that has lost its way. So I say that God cares about order and beauty. Is there then a special significance in the beauty and design of the tabernacle that can be applied to the building and design of churches and cathedrals? When the architects built the cathedrals and the churches, there's no doubt, I mean, if you, I, you know, last year I went on another, one of those tours of Europe and went to oh, amazing cathedrals in Germany and Switzerland and France and you know some of these are over a thousand years old the really really old ones and enormous things and there's no doubt the architects or the designers of these buildings are thinking of the tabernacle or the or the later version which is the um, the temple that's built Um, is this what I'm talking about is this how we are to apply exodus 26 you know get all the architects to build beautiful buildings well On the one hand, yes, I do believe that architecture does in some ways help us to worship God. I do believe that God uses aesthetics, he uses arts, he uses music. I think he uses film, I think he uses dance, I think he uses literature to help us to engage with him and to think about him in ways that that are transcendent. But there is a more profound way we can Think about God's order and beauty for the tabernacle to now than than just merely architecture. I've said this already. We are the new tabernacle. And our God of order, who has ordered the cosmos and has also ordered the design of the tabernacle, is now engaged in a project, a a new construction project, a third one, where it's actually a fourth one, I think, of rebuilding you and me, our hearts. When we look at all the details and the beauty and the design that's in Exodus 26, what you can think about there is what God is doing to reorder and redesign your heart. Because what's going on in our heart really is what God cares about. And remember, I'm not just talking about our feelings. I'm talking about our convictions, what we love. St. Augustine made this concept famous about 1,700 years ago. And he said this in his famous book, Confessions. He says, fire, think about this, fire tends upwards. A stone falls to the ground. Oil poured over water is born on the surface of the water, water poured over oil sinks below the oil it is by their weight that they are moved and seek their proper place let's think about me now my love is my weight wherever I go my love is what brings me there he says whatever you love that is what drives you to live and how you you live and and conversely the sinful person their loves in their heart is disordered augustine says but a person who lives a just and holy life a virtuous life has ordered their love so that what they do love is good and what is wrong to love is taken out or what they fail to love is now they they do love. There's a reordering that goes on. And you know what's at the top of that, that love list is, of course, God himself. And this reordering process takes our whole life. God is working in us by his spirit. So the goal of the spiritual life is to have God put our desire in the proper order. And if you stick with God, you can be sure that he will continue to be engaged in this project in your heart until you die and go to be with him. God is doing a Kevin MacLeod grand design on you. He's taking you piece by piece and transforming you from inside out. So what have we learned from this long, detailed, boring chapter of Exodus 26? Well, we learn that God is present with us, that he cares about our heart in worship, and that actually he's going to make your heart more ordered, more beautiful than the tabernacle. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you came to be with us, and you are with us now. We pray that we will live knowing that that to be true, that will transform how we think about ourselves and how we relate to you in our worship. And how we understand ourselves. Amen.